Conversations. Hello everyone and welcome to Med Conversations. I'm here with Davor. Hello. And my name is Beck and today we're talking about fever in the return traveller. So we'll start off with a case and we'll go through it all in a little bit more detail as we go. So the case is Thomas. He's a 29-year-old male presenting with a two-day history of headache, fever and malaise after returning to Australia where he lives from a stay in the Solomon Islands. All right, so Davo, what are some of the key points when you're taking a history of fever in the return traveller? So just I'd like to say you do your normal thorough history of presenting complaint that you'd usually do, but then there's a few factors additionally that I think are really important. So time course, time course, time course, much like a neurological history, you need to find out exactly what was happening when. Yeah, so in the case of Thomas, he spent two months in the Solomon Islands and the onset of his current symptoms occurred two weeks after he returned to Australia. So like you said, the time course of the actual symptoms. So in Thomas's case, the first symptom was fever, and when he got the fevers, he got headaches. In the times when he was afebrile, he had no headaches. Um, He finds that these fevers with rigors come and go at random times, and the malaise and headache are only occurring when he's febrile, as I said, but he's got no other symptoms at all. So geography is obviously really important as well. What was the case with Thomas? Yeah, so so I guess when you're talking about geography, it's important to get a history of all the countries that the patient has been to in the past 12 months. Some uh, infectious diseases have a very long incubation period. So in Thomas's case, he's only been to the Solomon Islands. He was in Honiara, which is the capital, and he had no stopovers there and back, and he took a plane. So that's also important because... There have actually been some very rare uh, documented cases of patients who've developed malaria after going to places like London because because mosquitoes got on the plane. So you might you might have wondered why they do that thing where they spray aeroplanes at the end of a flight from a tropical country, and that is the reason why. So that's geography. Basically, check the CDC website to find out what diseases you should be worried about for whichever countries your patient has been to. Mm, and it's important to know exactly where in the country is rural or city. Yeah, yeah. Activities and exposures, what they're actually doing. Staying in a five-star resort is probably a little bit safer than going on a cross-country trek. Yeah, so getting an idea of some specific exposures. So there's some questions that you tend to ask most people. Did you have any exposure to fresh water, camel milk, caving, sexual contact, animal contact, needles... Food. What kind of food did they eat? Did they have any sick contact, contacts? And, of course, did they get any insect bites? So, Davo, just to diverge a little bit and talk about some differentials, why would we be asking about fresh water? So, schistosomiasis is one that fresh water can expose you to. Yeah, so in the patient who's got abdominal pain and hematuria or hematochesia who's been kayaking, you might think of schistosomiasis. The male period. Is that it? Mm, mm, right. So the Egyptians think it was. Uh, uh, so, so I mentioned caving as well. That's looking for histoplasmosis and leptospirosis. One of the more unusual ones, exposure to camel milk products. Um, I had a patient when I was doing my infectious diseases term who I admitted and she had what seemed to be the flu. And my consultant, upon hearing my presentation of the case, questioned as to why I hadn't checked whether she'd had camel milk, which seemed completely irrelevant to anything, but camel milk products are an important 
uh, risk factor for MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. Mm. And also speaking of milk products, unpasteurized dairy, which I think is a little bit more common in areas like Turkey, can lead to brucella. There you go. It's also very trendy at the moment. It's not a good idea. So it's not all about the country. Uh, Host factors are really important as well. So what predispositions does your patient have? Yeah, are they on chemotherapy? Do they have HIV? Do they have any past medical history of anything? So in Thomas's case, he's previously well. He was in Honiara doing some volunteering with a business group. So he was mostly in the office. He lived in an apartment with other volunteers, which didn't have any air conditioning, which is relevant for the mosquitoes. The windows were usually open. He did get mosquito bites um, and he did eat local food, but otherwise he had none of those exposures that we've talked about. So that shopping list for a history in a fever and a return traveller, time course, time course, time course is the most important, but also geography is really important, what they were doing, so their activities, and finally the host factors, four things to tick off. Yeah, and so with host factors, we didn't really go much into that. So also also things like what vaccines they'd had, whether they've had their normal routine vaccinations and special pre-travel vaccinations, malaria prophylaxis, if that's relevant to the countries they're going to. So in Thomas's case, he did take doxycycline prior to and for the first week away, but then he stopped. So it's really important when taking a history of chemoprophylaxis for malaria to really get a good idea of adherence because most people have very poor adherence. Another thing is mosquito repellent, mosquito nets. People have mosquito nets, but they have holes in them, so they're pretty useless. People use repellent, but not always, so again, they still get bites. So I think the thing with infectious diseases, like anything else, is just being really, really thorough. Seems to be particularly the case in infectious diseases. Great history takers, RD doctors. So after the history comes the examination. So I'll tell you a bit about what we saw when we saw Thomas for the first time. On inspection, he looked flushed, he was very diaphoretic, and he was literally rigoring in the waiting room. His OBS, his temperature was 39.3, all the other OBS were within normal limits, and his GCS was 15. So, Davo, what other examinations would you do? So, typically, when someone comes in with a fever, I have a listen to their chest, feel their tummy, look for a rash, check their lines, I might listen to their heart if there's any concern for infective endocarditis, I might do a neuro exam if there was any concern. There might be CNS involvement, as in this case, because he's got a headache. I'd do all the meningism signs, so Brudzinski's and Koenig's. Anything else I'm forgetting that's relevant to this particular chap? Yeah, so I think anyone who has a fever, it's worth checking for spinal tenderness. You don't want to miss uh, an abscess. Peripheral stigmata of infective endocarditis is important as well. The lymph nodes are a good start, especially for non-specific illnesses such as HIV and you mentioned looking at the skin for a rash but also jaundice mm. is an important one and within rash obviously looking for some some telltale signs of particular rashes so in dengue fever you get a sunburn rash with pools of white and in uh, meningococcal you get that non-blanching purpuric rash mm. then looking up to the eyes Conjunctival suffusion is a sign of leptospirosis. It's reasonably common in leptospirosis, so it's also quite um, quite specific. It just looks like conjunctivitis, basically, but Google image some pictures. Yeah, less discharge, no <laughs> discharge. Mm. So in Thomas's case, he, he was completely fine, apart from the fact that he was febrile and rigoring. There was no obvious infective source. 
So just to recap again, um, Thomas is a young, previously well man who presents with undifferentiated fever with rigors two weeks after a return from the Solomon Islands where he had mosquito bites and ate local food. On examination, he has intermittent fevers with rigors, but all else is normal. And I think an important thing that we didn't really mention before is that headache. He only had the headache when he had a fever. Febrile headaches are very common and don't necessarily point you in the direction of any CNS pathology. It's obviously a good idea to rule that out, but most patients on the infectious diseases ward with cyclical fevers for any any reason have headaches when they have those fevers. All right, so moving on to how you think about the diagnosis in a case like this, what are some frameworks that you like to use in so these we, patients? So we said earlier, time course, time course, time course. That's because it's a really easy way to frame your differentials. And I split it into less than a 21-day incubation period and greater than a 21-day incubation period. So, Davo, can you think of some of the most common or most dangerous illnesses that have a shorter than three-week incubation period? So malaria, I thought, did, like a lot of types of malaria. Is that right? Yeah, so it depends on the type of malaria. Malaria can actually have any incubation period, but um, about two-thirds of the cases of um, Plasmodium falciparum... Which is the dangerous one. ...and the common one, tend to be seen within two weeks. So malaria for sure. Anything else? Breakbone fever. Yeah, so that's dengue fever. Breakbone because you get really bad bone pain. So that usually presents quite quickly. So the incubation period is only about a week, four to eight days. Mm. That presents with the bone pain, headache, and it can also be hemorrhagic. You treat that with supportive management. My ID is pretty bad. I'm out. So another one, enteric fever, which doesn't often get called that in my experience, but typhoid and paratyphoid. So these are caused by salmonella and they present with systemic, general systemic unwellness. A lot of these things are very nonspecific and abdominal pain and you treat them with, you treat enteric fever with fluoroquinolone. And diarrhea, right? Actually, no. So constipation is, is usually a presenting symptom rather than diarrhea. So that's how you differentiate between salmonella, typhi and the other kind of food. Food poisoning I think is the word you're looking for. <laughs> That's exactly right. So do you have any other causes of fever and a return traveller with a short incubation period that's common? So rickettsial diseases. These are the diseases you can get from ticks. So spotted and typhus fevers. Typhus not to be confused with typhoid. And rickettsial not to be confused with rickets. Completely unrelated to rickets. So rickettsial diseases are diagnosed with acute and convalescent serology and treated with doxycycline. So normally it's a clinical diagnosis. So four common infections that have a short incubation period, malaria, dengue fever, enteric fever or typhus, typhoid, sorry. Don't Uh, confuse them. (laughs) And uh, rickettsial diseases. So what about the longer incubation periods? What are we looking at? So some three key ones to keep in the back of your mind. Malaria again. Usually it's the plasmodium vivax that presents later. So P. vivax has greater than six-week incubation periods most of the time and can be even longer than that. The second one, tuberculosis. And thirdly, acute viral hepatitis. Cool. So another framework you've written down here is the most life-threatening infection. That's how I like to think about things. What 
is going to be the worst thing for me to miss in a patient like this. So ma- list. malaria seems to be the answer to everything in fever in the return traveller. That can be life-threatening. Dengue fever as well can be life-threatening. And a third one is meliodosis, which I admit I had never actually heard of until I was researching this podcast. So either I'm very ignorant or it's not particularly common, but we should probably know about it because it's right in our backyard. So this is from Northern Australia, Southeast Asia and China. Do you know anything about it, Davo? Something to do with safety pins. Correct. Uh, good thing to rote learn for examinations, but if you do ever happen to be looking under the microscope at Burkholderia pseudomelii, which I've definitely butchered the pronunciation of, that's the causative organism in malioidosis, and that has a characteristic bipolar staining with um, what they call a safety pin appearance, and it does look like a safety pin. Yeah, I'm looking at a picture right now. It's quite remarkable. I often can't see this stuff, like crescents, I don't believe in, but this is a safety pin. This is a sure. thing. So, so how do you get it? Walking around, generally. Yeah. Dangerous walking. <laughs> yeah, so percutaneous exposure to wet season soils or contaminated water. So this is something that often affects gardeners or people who are uh, farming without the necessary equipment in the wet season. And you investigate it by culturing everything. Is that right? Yes, so blood, sputum, urine, you do swabs of the skin, the throat, the rectum, and and then you're obviously looking for these safety pins. And the, the presentation varies a lot. It's actually usually subclinical, so people don't even know that they're, they're unwell. But out of those who do present with actual clinical symptoms, 50% of them present bacteremic. 25% are already in septic shock at presentation, and 10% have a, a chronic grumbling illness. Most commonly, it's pneumonia or a non-healing abscess. Right. Okay, so the red flags, infections you can't miss in a febrile returning traveller, falciparum malaria, dengue fever, and meliodosis. All right, let's move on. How would you investigate old mate Tom, whatever his name is? Yeah, we'll call him Tom. Okay. So, so starting off with a basic panel of bloods, FBE, UEC, LFT, CRP, And then there are a few other particular things you'd be looking for in the blood. So, again, he's got a sub-21-day incubation period. And you would still investigate for this if it was all greater than 21 days? You would. So thick and thin film for malaria. Just always investigate it in a fever, in a return traveller, basically. Yeah, so, so even if the patient isn't febrile on presentation, anyone who's been to a malaria endemic area and reports having had episodes of fevers needs to be investigated for malaria because Find as we yourself said, in court it's a red it. flag yeah. or you or you'll treat a patient badly <laughs> please double <laughs> priorities so thick and thin film um the other test is a malaria ict can we just talk about thick and thin film sure i never understood it until recently so why do you have to do both it's actually quite intuitive so it is quite intuitive <laughs> There are two things you're looking for. First is the presence, yes or no, of malaria parasites. So that's a thick film because if you've got more blood, you're more likely to see something. But because it's thick, you can't really see them very well. So once you've established that they're there, you take a thin film and you can see them in more detail and therefore determine what species they are. So if it's Vivax or Plasmodium um, falciparum. Which is really important, obviously, for prognosis. 
Yeah, so we've said thick and thin. I briefly mentioned ICT. ICT is an immunochromatographic test, and it works in a very similar way to a pregnancy test. Cheap and dirty. And it's really quick as well. Speaking of ICTs, that's how you investigate for dengue fever. Am I correct? You are correct. So you would also do dengue serology, but that would not necessarily be positive early on. A lot of these serologies require acute and convalescent testing. So you do a dengue ICT. They're they're reasonably good tests, not that sensitive, about 69%, but 96% specific, Mm. according to a study of about 300 patients, which might not be ideal. Then, of course, when you have a febrile patient, you take blood cultures. So moving on from bloods, what other investigations do you think we should do? So my baseline septic screen includes blood cultures, and it will include a chest x-ray, of course, and urine MCS. And in this patient, you might consider doing a lumbar puncture as well because of the headache, but I think in his case, we decided not to do it. So results, you get them back. FBE is significant for a thrombocytopenia of 68. Everything else is fine. White blood cells are fine, 5.1. LFTs are a tiny bit deranged. Yeah, but barely at all. Mm. So um, ALP 110, GGT 80, so pretty pretty okay. Bilirubin is 27. And the CRP is markedly elevated at 137. Yeah, so blood cultures obviously are still pending. And the blood film shows microcytic hypochromic red cells, but no malarial parasites. Interesting. Dengue ICT was negative, and malaria ICT, despite being quick and dirty, was still pending. Because of a, a computer issue, let's say. <laughs> and the chest x-ray was normal. All right. So what, what other infections would you investigate at this point, now that you think he doesn't have malaria? So one important thing is we don't think he doesn't have malaria. What? We, but it was negative. So when the clinical suspicion is high, or in fact, when the clinical suspicion is there, you do three thick and thin films separated by 12 to 24 hours. And so we we still think that malaria is quite likely. And of course, we don't know the ICT result yet because of a computer glitch. (laughs) But thinking outside of malaria, there are some other infections that in other cases you might want to be investigating for if they're indicated. So I'll just quickly run through very briefly some of the differentials in fever of the return traveller. So chikungunya, do you know anything about that? Do you know how it's transmitted? Delicious. <laughs> so this is another vector-borne disease from mosquitoes. It causes polyarthralgia and skin rash and you diagnose that with serology. And there's flavivirus, so this is usually from arthropods and Flavivirus is an umbrella term for various viruses, including dengue fever, which you probably know a little bit about, also the West Nile virus, which you may not, and tick-borne encephalitis, yellow fever, and Zika virus, which has been getting a bit of attention of late because of the rapidly increasing prevalence, particularly in Brazil. Usually, though, this is subclinical, and if it does present with symptoms, it causes a low-grade fever, a maculopapular rash, some arthralgias, conjunctivitis, and you are probably all very aware of the problems with pregnant women who have Zika virus. It's unconfirmed, but it is believed to lead to microcephaly. What else is there? So schistosomiasis we mentioned earlier, freshwater exposure, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. It can cause an eosinophilia, 
and you diagnose it with acute and convalescent serology. Fecal OCP is something that we often do in, in refugees or immigrants as part of a normal screen. What's an OCP? Oral oh, contraceptive pill. Over-system over parasites. So if you do a stool sample and you just write stool MCS, you won't um, have them look at all for any parasites. So okay. you need to write specifically over-system parasites or OCP on the slip. And that's usually useful in patients who've lived for a long time in an area with schistosomiasis because they have a higher parasite count. But in travellers who might have gone somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa for a short time, they normally have a negative faecal um, fecal sample. Okay. Particularly common in Egypt. In Egypt. Mm. Okay, so rickettsial illnesses. Again, we, we um, mentioned that earlier. It's caused by gram-negative bacteria and it's carried by ticks, fleas and lice. It can cause... Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever and Typhus, and you diagnose that with culture and serology and PCR. Then we have hepatitis. You're probably all very familiar with the serology for that. Leptospirosis, which causes a an abrupt onset of fever, rigors, myalgias, and headache, and is often found by people who've been um, exposed to contaminated surface water. I'm curious to know how you can be exposed to surface water or to not surface water. How do you get exposed to water but not surface water? If you have a penchant for travelling in (laughs) submarines, I'm sure it's possible. Um, That's also diagnosed with PCR or serology or cultures, but you need to have a pretty high clinical suspicion to, to look for that. Histoplasmosis, that is one that you think about in patients who've been in caves or construction sites, particularly in North or Central America, diagnose that with a chest X-ray and histopathology. And then a couple more quick ones, Q fever. This is one that I always learnt the buzzwords of um, slaughterhouse or abattoir when I was a medical student. It's caused by Coxiella burnetti and it is most commonly from um, animal carcasses or, or farm animal exposure. Common in Queensland. That's why it's called Q-fever. It's not why it's called Q-fever, but it's just good to know. Okay, good. Mm. (laughs) And you can get this everywhere in the world except for New Zealand, I think is what my little note to self means here. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. (laughs) Anyway, symptoms are flu-like. You can get pneumonia and hepatitis, or just like almost any of these, you can just get a pyrexia of unknown origin as well. Lastly, arbovirus or Ross River virus. This is also an Australian problem. Vector-borne, polyarthritis and a rash. There's no specific test, but you may find that there's an elevated ESR, so it's worth checking an ESR. I think it's been linked to chronic fatigue as well. Is that right? Mm. But going back to the patient in front of us, Thomas has a repeat thick and thin film done, and it comes back positive for Plasmodium falciparum. So the ICT, it turns out, was also positive for malaria and negative for dengue fever and the malarial parasite density is back at 0.05%. So is that high or low? Sounds awfully low to me. Yeah, so it is pretty low and that's one of many features that differentiate between uncomplicated and complicated malaria. So complicated malaria tends to be when the parasite count is greater than 0.5%, sorry, greater than 2%. So um, we've talked a little bit about a general approach to a febrile return traveller and Thomas's case. 
So we've diagnosed him with malaria. So at this point, we'll take the malaria path and talk a little bit about malaria. So firstly, incubation period. We've been banging on a lot about this, that it varies. Usually it's about two weeks. It's shortest in Plasmodium falciparum, 8 to 25 days, and longest in Plasmodium vivax. Sometimes it can be as long as months. So falciparum, commonest, dangerousest, quickest. Yes, and Plasmodium malariae can actually have a several year long incubation period. That would be a cracking diagnosis to make, but anyway. Okay, so what's the presentation of uncomplicated malaria? I'm guessing they get a fever, swinging fever, I think is classic, or cyclical fever is actually the term. Yeah, so not always. The, there are classic durations of the fever-free period that are supposed to lead you to a particular diagnosis, but in, in practice, and there's been a lot of um, study done into this, they're often quite random, and it's not in that typical cycle early on in the course of the illness. So mm. fever at random, unpredictable times. Mm. Tachycardia, tachypnea, just the general things that go along with fever. Um, so very non-specific. You can get a headache like our patient did in this case, a cough, anorexia, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, sore everywhere, so arthralgias, myalgias, and it all looks very non-specific on examination as well. You can have anemia. Can you think of anything else? Palpable spleen, is that one? Yeah, so... We have a big spleen. Um, we mentioned that our patient had an elevated bilirubin. He wasn't actually jaundiced, but you can become quite profoundly jaundiced with mm. malaria as well. Mm. So in terms of investigations in uncomplicated malaria, usually they're significant for obviously the thick and thin film with normally ze- less than 0.1% of parasitized red blood cells. You can have some anemia, thrombocytopenia, elevated transaminases, which in our patient, actually, he had elevated um, obstructive, an obstructive picture of LFTs, so it's not that specific. Mm. Um, mild coagulopathies, and you can get an elevation in urea and creatinine. So it's all a bit non-specific, but I guess the main ones are the thrombocytopenia and the microcytic anemia. Mm. Okay, so there's a few different kinds of malarias. So a quick comparison of the different species of malaria. Um, the felciparum, we've said before, is, is the quick one. It's the worst one. It's the most common one. Plasmodium vivax is, um, to a lesser degree, all of those things. There's also one called Plasmodium nolesi, which is common in South and Southeast Asia. And with um, ovale or malaria, Plasmodium ovale or malaria, it's quite uncommon for a patient to present with severe disease. So they're, they're the more mild types. If you're going to get any, you want those two. Mm. Friendly ovalia malaria is what you want. So we talked a bit about fever periodicity. The reason that you get a fever in malaria is because during the malaria life, life cycle, there's rupture of the erythrocytes. So when the red blood cells burst, that's when the parasitemia is the highest and that's when the fever comes about. So the reason that the fever isn't that classic um, cyclical timing at the start of an acute illness is because this isn't really in sync. They haven't sorted out their schedules as yet. <laughs> okay, so that's uncomplicated malaria. Complicated malaria, um, it's 
more or less defined by patients who are too sick to sit upright or to take oral medications reliably. I love a good pragmatic definition. It's excellent. And then something that's a little bit less pragmatic um, is using the parasitemia um, percentage as a way of classifying it. So greater than 5% usually, or in areas of high transmission, greater than 10%. So this I find really interesting. Do you know why there'd be a different cutoff in someone who's, say, been living in sub-Saharan Africa for... 40 years versus me if I went to malaria. Went to malaria? <laughs> if I went to um, the tropics for a little while. I would imagine because people that are there all the time just have some malaria hanging out all the time. Yeah, yeah. So they have a baseline parasitemia. Mm. Okay, so the clinical features in complicated malaria are mostly secondary to the red blood cells just sticking to some of the small blood vessels and causing tiny infarcts mm. or capillary leakage and organ dysfunction. So GCS is the first one. GCS can drop with complicated malaria, and this is called cerebral malaria. Then it just basically can affect any system. So you can have respiratory distress, circulatory collapse, metabolic acidosis, renal failure, and it can cause hemoglobinuria. Blackwater fever, I believe, is the other term. It is, it is. That's why malaria used to be called that, Mm. or is called that Mm. in some... In some circles. Um, so hepatic favor, failure, coagulopathies, with or without DIC. And the anemia that we mentioned earlier can be quite severe, and there can be massive intravascular hemolysis as well, hypoglycemia, and splenic rupture. Is that because the parasites are using up your blood glucose? Yes, I'll say yes. I'm not, I'm not actually sure. Absolute but, bastards. But it could be that. It's interesting because you'd usually get a hyperglycemia in infection. Mm. Except when you've got sure parasites why. floating in your blood. <laughs> okay, so cerebral malaria causes encephalopathy. And the risk factors for developing this are, as with many of these other conditions, the very young, the very old, the pregnant, people with a poor baseline. So if they've got HIV or poor nutritional status, patients post-splenectomy can be at risk of... Um, uh, cerebral malaria. Hmm. So do you know how it presents? Not really, but I'm guessing it doesn't have focal neurology because it doesn't attack particular parts of your anatomy. So Yeah, that's it. Like all of these things, decreased GCS, that leads to seizures and then death. Yeah, more or less in summary, that's, that's how it works. So hmm. untreated, um, the mortality is inevitable. Wow. And even with treatment, mortality sits at 15 to 20%. Damn. So it's the reason that you need to think about malaria every time and mm. be very worried if um, if there's any signs that it could be developing into anything affecting the nervous system. So the treatment um, of malaria depends on whether it's uncomplicated or complicated. So we'll start off with uncomplicated. There is resistance that's emerged in various places pretty much all over the world to chloroquine. But if a patient comes back from an area that's certainly sensitive to chloroquine, of which there are very few areas, so Haiti, Dominican Republic, and certain parts of the Middle East and Central America, this is obviously something that you would look up, Mm. um, then you give chloroquine. And most cases are resistant to that, so instead you give two drugs. And there's a combination therapy. The one that we use at our hospital, the brand name is Reamet, but... No particular regimen is superior to any other, 
but they always have um, artemisinin, which I can just not say, but um, artemisinin combination therapies is what you need to remember. Reumet, the brand, is comprised of Artemisa and Lumafantrine. So the Nobel Prize for Medicine was given out to the discoverer of artemisinin. I also can't say it. Last year. And she was a woman. She was a lady and she was a, a practicer of Chinese traditional a medicine. practicer. A practicer of Chinese traditional medicine. But she also had her foot in the kind of modern medicine camp. And she observed that there was this ancient treatment that we didn't know anything about these days and did some research into it and isolated the compound and created this amazing drug. It's a really cool story. That's great. So they, they were treating it historically with Chinese medicine? Yeah, with like a herb or something, and then she managed to isolate the compound and make this really effective drug. Mm. Okay, so what if malaria is complicated? How do you treat it then? I imagine it's the same thing, but IV, like all complicated things, and then you cross your fingers. More or less. So uh, IV artesanate for 24 hours, and usually you follow that by the normal course of the oral Artemis... <laughs> I just can't do it. Artemisinin. Artemisinin, um, combination agent, and obviously supportive therapy. So if they're having seizures, benzodiazepines, paracetamol for pain, etc. So our patient Thomas um, got his three days of um, artemisinin combination therapy orally, and he got better. But as we know, ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure. So... Preventative things you can try um, include advising them to have lots of gin and tonics. No, so tonic tonic water contains something called quinine, mm. which is the thing that makes it taste really bitter. And quinine is an anti-malarial compound. So we still use that as a preventative agent. Well, chloroquinine, which I talked about that. earlier, yeah. is essentially that. Yeah. Okay. So so the British actually brought that to India when they colonised it and. The, um, the tonic water that they initially had was just not palatable because it was so bitter. So they ended up watering it down so much it became useless, but an excellent mixer. Mm. Disney and Dr. Zeus have also had a go. Um, you should all have a look in our link dump at the excerpts we've got there from a Dr. Zeus book, which, like all his books, is amazing. And you should definitely all also watch the YouTube video we've linked there from... A Disney video, The Winged Scourge. Not as popular as Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, but classic nonetheless. Really, I'm not sure why. So they offer some suggestions such as spray oil onto a creek. (laughs) So more seriously, in a pre-travel consultation, you need to advise your patients to avoid bites however they can. So clothing, long pants and shirts, light colours, wearing repellents, repellent with DEET, Mm. bed nets, making sure there's no holes in them. Air conditioning is better than just fans. Fans is better than nothing and well-screened rooms. In terms of chemoprophylaxis, there are a variety of options. Um, And they include a combination of atavacone proguanil, which you need to take daily, two days before and seven days after the trip. It's got the fewer side effects. You don't need to take it for very long, but it is the most expensive. Classic. Somewhere um, in the middle is mephacol. Mefloquine, and um, that can cause the adverse effect of nightmares. Which so is that related to off. chloroquine? Yes, it's in the same class, so they're quinolines. Then lastly, the one that people mostly take, I think, is doxycycline, just the normal antibiotic. You take it two days before and a whole four weeks after the trip. No good for whiteies. 
And why is that? They get really bad sunburns. So probably particularly bad in white people, but anyone is much more susceptible to sunburn and sun sensitivity in general Mm. taking that. So it's really cheap. So chemoprophylaxis, the best but most expensive is malarone. Mefloquine is in the middle and that's related to chloroquine. And doxycycline as well is another option. And that takes us to the end of this podcast. Thank you for persevering through 36 minutes. (laughs) Fascinating stuff, though. See you next time. Thank you. Bye.